2021 is looking an awful lot like 2020 so far. Lockdown authoritarianism, big tech censorship and woke hysteria continue to run amok. We're going to have to fight for freedom, democracy and sanity all over again this year and Spiked intends to play our part. But to do so, we need your help. If you enjoy what we do and you have a bit of money to spare, please do consider donating to Spiked or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month is a huge help, allowing us to keep bringing you our free podcasts, articles, essays, insights and more. To start your regular donation to Spiked today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, onto the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. Joining me this week, we have Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we'll be discussing the EU's vaccine wars. If supply is tight in the UK... It's even tighter in Europe. Now the companies must deliver. They must honour their obligations. We reject the logic of first come first serve. The UK factories are part of our advanced purchase agreements and this is why they have to deliver. The really important thing is making sure that our own vaccination programme proceeds precisely as planned. The EU's vaccination programme, when first announced, was heralded as the epitome of European solidarity, a demonstration of the immense bargaining power of a large multinational bloc, and even as a repudiation of nationalism and protectionism. The UK, in contrast, was pilloried for opting out of the programme. Ministers were accused of putting Brexit ideology above saving lives. Britain would be shafted on price and supply, we were told how different things look now. Brexit Britain has raced ahead of the rest of Europe in its vaccine rollout, and the EU has hit some significant bumps in the past week or so. Supplies of the Pfizer vaccine have slowed, leading to some parts of Spain to have to suspend vaccination entirely, and a war of words broke out when AstraZeneca revealed it would only be able to deliver less than half of the agreed doses to the EU in the first quarter of this year. But the EU has taken out the bad news on the UK. It's called on AstraZeneca to divert UK-produced vaccines to the EU and has even threatened to block exports of the Pfizer jab to Britain. Brendan, what are your thoughts on this still ongoing and seemingly still escalating row? I think it's really, really shocking. I mean, even I, as a hardcore Brexiteer, am shocked by what I'm reading. I think it's it's an incredibly serious situation because... It suggests that the European Union, for all the claims that it was this beacon of solidarity and it was the institution that would bring peace and unity to the continent of Europe, it can't even save its citizens' lives. You know, when Spain and others have to cease vaccination in parts of the country because they don't have sufficient supplies, that means people will probably die as a consequence. And this is how serious it is. And I think Politically, it is absolutely fascinating and and disturbing in equal measure. I mean, firstly, it completely disproves all the the big lies we were told, essentially, by the Remain establishment in the UK. Part of their project fear argument in early 2020 was that we would be at the back of the queue for the COVID vaccine. Brexit means it would be more difficult for us to 
procure vaccines, they would be more expensive. And essentially, they were saying people will will die as a result of us leaving the European Union. And the opposite has turned out to be the case. Britain is storming ahead. I have numerous criticisms of Boris Johnson's government and, and how it's handled the pandemic. But its rollout of the vaccine has been incredibly impressive. I mean, it has been speedy and they've covered some very vulnerable people in a very short period of time. And that is to be applauded. Whereas the European Union is lagging behind in a really depressing and dangerous way. And I think the way that the EU has lashed out against Britain really reveals a disarray at the heart of the European project, because what they are essentially doing is trying to deflect attention from the real problem here. And the real problem is that the EU, as as we have argued for a long time, is a vast and sclerotic bureaucracy very, very inefficient, very self-interested, protectionist in its own way, but not even protectionist in a way that is useful for the people who live in the European Union, and not capable of doing things in a civilised, organised fashion. And as a consequence, people across Europe, the 500 million people who live in the EU, are going to suffer. So I keep thinking to myself, just imagine if this was the other way around. Just imagine Mm. if it was Brexit Britain that was struggling to get vaccines, that wasn't vaccinating people, that was threatening to take vaccine producers to court or raiding their supplies and storming into their offices and demanding vaccines. Imagine it was Brexit Britain doing that. It would be the only news discussion in the entire country. It would be held up as solid proof of what a disaster Brexit was, how mistaken we all are, how stupid voters are, and so on and so forth. But what's actually happening is, of course, there is discussion about the crisis in the European Union, but it's been played down by the kinds of voices who would have hollered from the rooftops if the shoe had been on the other foot. So the hypocrisy, the uselessness, and the dangerousness of the European Union project and its supporters has really been thrown into sharp relief by this crisis. Ella? Well, looking at tweets from Katia Adler, the BBC reporter who thinks fair to say most of the time sounds like she's just reporting on the kind of bitchy gossip between Westminster and Brussels, has put out a number of threads, which some people have questioned on Twitter. But one of the things that she's reporting is that EU diplomats, she says, are saying privately that the post-Brexit atmosphere could be hindering cooperation between the two sides. And that's the general tone that lots of people are taking in their assessment of what's going on at the moment. Not that the problem is with the European Union Mm. or its desire to fetishise the process of regulation over getting on with the job of getting the vaccine rolled out to the citizens of its member states. But that Brexit and the atmosphere around Brexit and the kind of, you know, the nasty Brits who dared to leave this wonderful institution are really the ones that are at fault here. I mean, if ever there was a kind of vindication for Brexit voters, it is this. And you have to try really hard to not be smug about it because there's nothing to be, there's nothing to be smug about. This is a serious situation. And actually, as lots of people have pointed out, it would be a worthwhile display of the fact that Brexit wasn't just about kind of small time nationalism to be talking about international solidarity, to be talking about international cooperation here. And actually, to their credit, at no point really has the British government done anything to point to a feeling of pulling up the drawbridge. 
And yet there is this feeling that it's Britain's fault. But I mean, you have to remind people that this it's not like this is the first time the European Union has failed to do what it says is its job, is acting as a collective. The various articles that it wasn't just spiked reporting, a lot of people ran back in March of 2020 when beds were overflowing in Italy, where there were mm. scenes of serious devastation in the poorer member states of the European Union. And what did they do just at the breakout this virus when, you know, lots of people had no idea whether it was going to kill off all of us or whether it was going to be nothing at all. They instituted extra fines on Italy. No member states came to Italy's aid when they asked for financial help because people were having to default on their mortgages. They had no sense of any desire to work in any kind of cooperation to the benefit of their member states back then. So it's no surprise that they haven't got that sense of what acting as a real collective means when it comes to a year later now in, in relation to the vaccine. What you can take out of this is that the European Union is not some kind of airy-fairy, wonderful organisation based on international cooperation. I mean, the very fact that it is hung up on delaying things in relation to the vaccine rollout because of its own regulation processes, rather than, for example, accepting Britain's okaying of certain aspects of the virus and our regulation and working in cooperation there shows you that it's always been more about control through terribly boring bureaucratic means rather than actually being any kind of political driver of progress. So the broader picture is this calls into questions things that we've been talking about in relation to the European Union for years now. We're kind of being proven right that no, it's not some kind of evil organisation, but it is so dredged in bureaucracy and time wasting that it is always going to be a block on progress especially in the times of emergency as we are in at the moment sometimes you can spend ages choosing an internet service provider usually it comes down to how can i get the best speed for the lowest price but a lot of the choice between companies is a bit of an illusion isps operate like monopolies and they use this monopoly power to take advantage of their customers. Some will even cap your data or throttle your streaming. But worst of all, ISPs are required by law to keep logs on all your internet activity for 12 months, and the authorities are allowed to access these logs without a warrant. To keep my internet usage hidden from ISPs, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is a simple app that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure virtual private network so your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life you spend on the internet, especially now in lockdown. If you're not protecting yourself, then everything you do is being tracked by your ISP. They can then hand over your information to government agencies, even when you've done nothing wrong. That's why I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN can do all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs who mine your activity and violate your right to privacy. Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash spiked now. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash spiked to get three extra months for free. 
Go to expressvpn.com slash spiked right now to learn more. Anyone who is currently trying to deflect blame away from the EU is being totally dishonest. The EU's involvement in the vaccine process has delayed the procurement and the approval. There's no, there's just no questioning that. I mean, you know, Britain stands out in that, in that sense. So, you know, the UK signed its deal with AstraZeneca in, in May. A number of EU countries are actually ready to sign up around a similar time until the European Commission took over the negotiations and they, they added an extra two months of talks didn't actually add anything material to that discussion. And in the end, the the UK had a three-month head start to sort out all of the kinks in the supply chain. That meant by the time the AstraZeneca vaccine was approved in the UK, which again was a month ahead of the EU, a lot of the kind of kinks had been worked out. The EU is now having to deal with similar kinds of problems, having to iron out similar kinks, but just at a much later stage. And timing when it comes to the vaccine is everything. You know, every additional day is an extra day's worth of COVID deaths. It's also an extra day in lockdown, which, you know, seems to be one of the really devastating things that is going to result from from a substantial delay. It means that Europe is going to be behind much of the rest of the world in opening up because it's not just the UK that's speeding ahead. The US is speeding ahead. Many countries in the Middle East like Israel and Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates are speeding ahead. And at some point, it could it could be that Europe remains the last continent that's closed. And that that would truly be devastating because we're already seeing that people are cracking under the strain of lockdown in in Holland this week. There have been four days worth of rioting. Holland is not a country that's given to rioting. It's it's not it's not France. They don't have this tradition of angry protest in the same way. Many officials fear similar kind of outbreaks of violence elsewhere on the continent. We expect France to go into another lockdown pretty soon as the British variant seems to be taking over. So th- I don't think the EU has really grasped the nettle with this or, or understood just how important it is to have a kind of oversupply of vaccines, essentially. It's, it's tried to scrimp on the price. It's tried to get a lower price than everyone else at the cost of supply. It's tried to extend the negotiations rather than seal the deal earlier. And European citizens are paying the price for that. And, that, and that's absolutely tragic. Brendan? What the whole thing demonstrates is the myth of EU solidarity. Because if you follow what the Commission and other officials in Brussels are saying about vaccine procurement and approval and all those other things. It's so obvious to me that this is not about solidarity. It's about control and it's about centralization. Mm-hmm. It's about ensuring that every member state abides by the same rules. And if you, you know, Ursula von der Leyen, the way in which she said, no member state may do this on their own. They're not permitted. That is not allowed. I mean, this was always about enforcing rules. It was about ensuring that centralized power was not called into question, even in a time of crisis, even when people are dying and more will die as a consequence of that centralization and the impact it has on the ability of nations to move in a fleet-footed way and to ensure that they're doing things quickly and efficiently. So it's about centralization and control, and that sums up the European Union. It is not a project that has, has anything to do with solidarity. It's a project that is about centralizing the sovereign powers or the former sovereign powers of European nation states and creating a new form of power that is, by definition, distant from people, increasingly ossified, increasingly 
Byzantine, you know, very bureaucratic. You know, the further that power gets away from people, the more ossified it tends to become and the less responsive it tends to become. And that's always been the case in the European Union. The only difference now is that it's it's still the case, but it's a life and death problem rather than just being a frustrating political problem or, or a problem of democracy. So we're seeing the true nature of the European Union, even though this is a crisis and the European Union is troubleshooting in some ways. This is, in essence, the true nature of the EU. It's a, an institution that has pulled the sovereign power of various nations and in the process made it more difficult for those nations to respond to the needs of their populations. And that's what's happening right now. And, and as I say, it's happening not simply in an economic way. You know, think about the inability of Greece to respond sensitively to the economic problems that it faced because of its relationship with the EU or the inability of France or the Netherlands to respond to the democratic demands of their people because of their relationship with the EU. These were all terrible problems, as we have discussed on Spike for years and years. But now the inability of these nations to behave in a responsive democratic fashion is going to cost people their lives. I mean, it's that brutal. So I think, or, or in many ways, I hope that this will be a tipping point crisis for the European Union, because this to me just seems unsustainable. And we know there's a great deal of Euroscepticism in Europe anyway, amongst young people in Italy, numerous working class people in France, growing numbers of Eurosceptics in the Netherlands, and of course, in Hungary and Poland too, there's lots of Euroscepticism and doubt about Brussels. I hope that is pushed further by this process, because we're really seeing how problematic the European Union can be. Ella's absolutely right. This is the clearest vindication you could ask for of Brexit. We should obviously add the one exception to the countries that are forced to follow the EU rules, which is Germany, because Germany did go behind <laughs> the backs of all the other member states and buy several million doses of additional vaccines. So there is a whole lot of politicking going on outside of these kind of very empty gestures towards international solidarity and EU solidarity. And it seems to be that Germany has behaves almost psychotically in the past week. Members of the German government briefing information about the AstraZeneca vaccine, suggesting that it's completely ineffective in seniors. Now, that would be completely devastating for the British vaccine rollout. It's funny because you, then you have to hold these two thoughts in your head at the same time. The EU is simultaneously throwing its toys out the pram, getting furious that it cannot get a hold of this vaccine, while on the other hand, you have the German government briefing that it's completely ineffective anyway. You know, so the politics of this have exploded to such an extent that it clearly seems as if it's colouring the science of it too. And the consequences there for health and for people's confidence in the, in the vaccine rollout could be incredibly profound. But, you know, it seems as if the German government and the European Union have no qualms about playing with fire in, in that respect. And, and it's interesting to see the relative calmness of our supposedly populist anti-EU government and supposedly bureaucratic and sensible EU, which is pretty much throwing its toys out of the pram and making all these you know, shocking announcements and threats every 10 minutes. Investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, high commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it seem complicated for people to start investing. Meanwhile, trillion-dollar investment companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free trade is on a mission to change that, by breaking down these barriers and by opening up stock investing to everyone. 
While other brokers charge up to £12 for every trade, Free Trade doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can invest and keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by over 250,000 people. It's authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority and protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Free Trade has won the award for Best Online Trading Platform at the British Banking Awards for two years in a row. Free Trade lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs and investment trusts, all without commissions. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners and experts alike. You can start investing from as little as just £2. Free Trade doesn't offer speculative products such as CFDs or spread betting or products with leverage. And they don't do day trading. They're all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model and no hidden fees or inflated spreads. You can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA. Or you can sign up to Free Trade Plus, which has more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. Self-invested personal pensions are also being launched on Free Trade soon. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. Listeners to this podcast can get a special offer when they sign up to Free Trade. Just go to freetrade.io slash spiked. And if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. Some of the shares you can get include Greg's, Rightmove or Apple. For more information, visit freetrade.io. And for the special offer, visit freetrade.io slash spiked. I think we should as well talk about the UK. It's obviously this week we reached the the horrific milestone of 100,000 deaths. So while the the vaccine program is, is, is going very well, that's a rarity in this pandemic where I think absolutely no one would describe Britain's handling overall as anything other than catastrophic. Brendan, do you want to talk a bit about this news? I have two responses to it, really. The first is an instinct to explain why Britain might have had a higher death toll or death rate than other countries. Because I do get frustrated with the idea that it's all the government's fault. And I think there's actually something quite regressive in the idea that you can hold the government responsible for 100,000 deaths from a virus. I mean, there's something almost medieval about that. You know, we need to know the source of this evil when in fact, It's a natural virus. It emerged largely out of the blue. No one really knew the impact it would have, certainly in the early days, and it spread quite fast. Plus, we were hit by a new variant back in October, November, December, which has had a massive impact on the death rate. So I'm interested in understanding why Britain might have been hit differently. And there is some interesting analysis of this. We are more densely populated. We are a global hub in a way that other countries aren't, which has made it more difficult to close borders or undesirable to close borders. We have a higher number of ethnic minority communities because we have had large amounts of immigration in recent decades, which I think is a very good thing. And this disease has a a larger impact on ethnic minority communities. 
There's also the obesity issue. You know, the BBC analysed obesity rates in Britain in comparison with other countries, and obesity is a significant factor in the impact that the virus can have. So there are lots of explanations for why Britain might have had a higher death rate than other countries. And it is worth factoring those in because I think it is so dangerous to go down this road of saying it's the government's fault because the problem with that is firstly, I just think it's irrational and (laughs) unfair. It's not a word I normally use in relation to criticising governments, but it's irrational and unfair to hold a government to account entirely for the impact that a virus has. But also more problematically, I think doing that actually opens the door to even more authoritarianism in the future. Because if you nurture this idea that it is within a government's power to completely control a virus, to make sure that nobody dies, which I think is a fantasy, but if you nurture this idea, you are inviting them to take extreme measures in the future, because it's only with absolutely extreme measures that you could ever hope to have a situation where hardly anyone dies from a virus, like completely sealing the borders, putting everyone under house arrest, don't let us do anything at all. You know, do we want the government to do that? So there's a danger with pinning the blame entirely on the government in that it will license them to take extraordinary action in the future that we will all come to regret. That's my first response. My second response is that, of course, there are criticisms that we can and should make of the government. There are criticisms of its failure to protect care homes, which I think was very significant. And the fact that they didn't learn from that over the months was even more shocking. Their failure to entertain the possibility of shielding the vulnerable while while allowing the economic life and social life to continue relatively normally. Their failure to consider anything like that was, I think, a problem. And, you know, there are things like that, definitely, where you can criticise the government and make the argument that they may have contributed to worsening the impact of the virus. So I think we've got to strike a careful balance between, on the one side, not going down this almost medieval route of saying that We can point to the handful of government ministers who are to blame for 100,000 deaths and accuse them of murder, while at the same time, I do think we need a proper reckoning, which probably won't come for quite a long time, a proper reckoning of what we did that was right, what we did that was wrong, whether the lockdown was the right solution, why the lockdown did not manage to curb new waves, as we were told that it would whether we responded to the new variant quickly enough, how this new variant came about, was it because we locked people down or was it because we allowed people to associate with each other? All those kinds of questions, I think, will need to be asked, but I think they should be asked in a rational, reflective way rather than from an instinct of holding people to account for what a virus has done. Ella? Also, what was actually entirely expected and deeply depressing was the subtle announcement from Boris Johnson that schools won't be reopening until early March, which, you know, without saying it means that for the rest of society, other than schools, lockdown is going to continue for even longer. And the reason why that's so frustrating is not just because life continues to be on hold in stasis, in stagnation, and people are continuing to sink under the consequences of lockdown. But because, as Brendan mentioned, one of the key factors in the death toll is people in care homes and the elderly. We have to remember that. And this is where I would say you really can hold the government to account, and it is the government's fault, is when you look at the numbers, for example, you know, the COVID deaths in care homes almost tripled in a fortnight 
a few weeks ago in January with 1,705 residents dying in a week around the 22nd of January. And that is not because for some unknown reason, coronavirus seems to be getting through all the visors and aprons that people are wearing in care homes, but because the government has not learnt its lesson and the NHS has not learnt its lesson from lockdowns previous and from the last year now of dealing with this pandemic of not sending people home back to care homes who have tested positive with coronavirus and for not properly separating out coronavirus patients from elderly and vulnerable people. Those mistakes are continuing to this day to be made and we know that the vast majority of people who are dying from this virus are elderly and those living in care homes or those who are need to be shielded and are vulnerable. So while we're told that the whole of society has to be put on hold to protect the vulnerable, it feels sometimes like it doesn't actually matter that I'm cooped up at home because in the care home down the road, they're having people shipped out from hospital back in to allow the virus to spread. So it is just the most infuriating thing. And there is a blame there. And more importantly, actually, there is a thing that can be fixed. The thing that is really frustrating about this the way in which people are dealing with this virus is that information changes all the time. And there's a real, when we're told that, and yet there's a real reluctance on the behalf of the government, on behalf of, at this point, kind of shrieking media commentators to allow any flexibility in discussion around this. So if you dare to suggest, you know, to remind people even that the government promised that once we got to a certain level of vaccinations, mm. that that would be reason to allow the rest of society to open up. If you even dare to suggest that, particularly in London, that at this point there might be, perhaps there might be enough young people who have actually caught the virus alongside enough old people who have been vaccinated to start allowing things to get back to some semblance of normality. You're evil and the clampdowns and censorship continued. What are politicians most exercised about right now in the midst of this pandemic? They're all desperate to wring an apology out of Desmond Swain for, okay, saying something that sounded a bit ridiculous about manipulating numbers in relation to coronavirus, but expressing a view a lot. He's not been secretive about his view as a kind of harsh lockdown skeptic. They all want to wring an apology out of a man. I mean, who cares? Mm. Never mind the free speech implications of that. Who flipping cares if he apologised? What change will that make in our, as ordinary people's, experience of this pandemic? So it is just impossible to get a grasp of what's going on, what could be the right solution, when it feels like you're a horse in the traps with blinkers on and you are forced to take one route in this. And yes, you might argue that, that is the strategy you have to take, that we have to just accept the government strategy on this and go with it. But while you might physically agree to restrictions on your everyday life in terms of, you know, staying distant, wearing masks, whatever it is, staying at home, you don't have to allow restrictions on your mind, on your ability mm. to think about this, on your ability to argue about other strategies. And yet we're told you know, basically switch off to now and just do what you're told. And, you know, to say that's disempowering for people is putting it mildly. I think you've hinted towards this, Ella, talking about, you know, what what is the point at which the vaccinations mean we can open up? But I think there is a real danger of mission creep here, where a lot of people who are very enthusiastic about the lockdown do want it to go on for a lot longer, do want us to go for this kind of zero COVID policy, rather than accepting 
that at a certain point when we have vaccinated the vulnerable, the disease will not be putting people in hospital or, or killing them at any level higher than the flu or any other kind of respiratory illness. And by the time we get to that stage, surely it's right that we go back to normal, that we are able to enjoy life once more. I mean, there's 67 million people sitting there with their lives on hold, but there is just a danger that there is a kind of mission creep, that there's this kind of one more heave mentality which could make restrictions of some kind go on for a very long time. Brendan, do you want to say the last thing? I'm not the kind of person who thinks you should just go outside and cough on people or go to a nightclub with a thousand people in it. The time is not right for that. But what worries me most about this lockdown is the anticipation of the return of those freedoms has disappeared. And in the first lockdown in March and April, in that lockdown that we told would last for three or four weeks, but ended up lasting three months. One thing that I think helped to get people through that lockdown, even though it was quite shocking, was a shared sense that it was an unusual thing to be doing. There was, mm. a, there was a strong sense among people that this was very odd. This would be a bit of a one-off and there would be an opening up in which we could all go to the pub. We could all go out and dance and eat and have fun. And it would be absolutely brilliant. You don't get that sense now because firstly, we don't know when we're going to open up, they won't tell us. They think it's irresponsible even to ask that question. You know, how dare you ask about the return of your freedoms? But also, I think what's happening is, you're right, Fraser, it's mission creep, or maybe even something worse. It's the naturalization of lockdown as a response to crisis. And the more that this gets accepted as the legitimate way to respond to serious problems or serious crises, I think the more trouble our society will be in because every time there's a new virus or a really bad flu season or some overblown climate catastrophe that people talk about a lot, you could see the lockdown being applied in all sorts of situations the more that we come to accept it as a way of life. So I'm worried about the lack of bristling at the moment, the lack of discomfort, the lack of agitation. And instead, there seems to be an acceptance, not amongst the whole population. I'm sure many people are incredibly upset and very worried and very anxious to get back to normal life. But politically, there seems to be much more acceptance of this and much more reluctance to tolerate any questioning of it. So that suggests to me it's been institutionalized as a way of dealing with problems. You can really see that in, as, as Ella was mentioning, the furious assault on any dissenters or people who ask questions, whether it's Desmond Swain or Sunitra Gupta, who seems to me to have gone quiet because she's been turned into a 21st century witch. I mean, it's been such a cruel and censorious campaign against her. Carol Sakura, Julia Hartley Brewer, Toby Young. I mean, all these people being witch hunted by Neil O'Brien and his army of McCarthyites. Firstly, it's just unpleasant and vindictive. And so obviously a displacement activity from addressing why the government itself has failed to get coronavirus under control. But secondly, it is an effort to insulate lockdown from criticism, to insulate this policy from any strong criticism, strong challenge, which will contribute further to the institutionalization of it as a natural response to crises. That is why I think the most important task at the moment is actually to defend freedom of thought and freedom of speech and the right of lockdown dissenters to say very critical things about government policy and to raise questions about COVID-19. Defending that freedom, I think, is the most important thing if we are going to find a way out of this pretty disastrous authoritarian moment we find ourselves in. 
Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.